Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Please don't skip forward. Please hear me out. It's coming up to Christmas and we want to be around in 2024 to keep having the conversations like the one you're about to listen to. And the only way we can do that is if some of you dig deep, throw your hands in your pockets and give us the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays. Uh, all you got to do is click the link at the top of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's a few quid to you, but to us, it's lights on, mics on, and we go into 2024 limping along, but still able to take the odd swing and keep carving out the space for conversations that thousands of you are listening to. So we just need a few of you to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. And it's not a one-way street. I tell you all the time, you get a ton of additional content, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed, entirely plea-free. So think of it as the little Christmas present you can get for yourself. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please join us. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm your host, Sam McElwain. And as ever, my trusty foil is by my side, metaphorically speaking. Gareth Mulvana, how are you, Gareth? Not too bad. Back again, Sam. Great to be Good to be here. I missed the one with Alana last week, unfortunately, but uh, yep, good to be here again. Did, did Forrest win at the weekend? Uh, no. All right, I thought that that's why you were back on. You, you tend to go missing when Forrest have a bad result. No, yeah. I'm just full of, full of Christmas cheer, pre-Christmas cheer. What? Seriously? We'll have to get that out of you. You can't have that kind of stuff going on. Although I did put up a photograph today on, on Twitter of my, uh, my desk and there's all my lights and my little man sitting. So, yeah. Very festive, yeah. Bah humbug! I'm trying to trying to expunge myself of the bah humbug this year. Um, tonight we are joined by somebody who I've been looking forward to this one for a while, to be honest. And I don't don't want to give him too much of an introduction because I don't think he deserves it. What I actually mean is he doesn't need it. Um, tonight we have the Sky News senior Ireland correspondent David Blevins, and this is a guy. If you've ever watched the news in the last twenty seven years and something major has happened, he's the guy standing looking at us and giving us the information. So, David, how are you? And welcome. Thanks and well, and it's it's really good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Hi, David. How are you? I, I'm good, thanks. It's been a busy uh, few weeks in news, but uh, I'm glad to take some time out and chat to you guys. Oh, well, thank you very you much. Busy? How's it been busy? There's something going on that we don't know about. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, but I suppose um, what I said at the beginning there, any sort of major sort of event that has happened in Northern Ireland over the last 27 years, you've been there uh, and you've seen it all. So I suppose the first question has to be, does it ever get boring? Does it ever get to the point where you think, why am I doing this? No, it doesn't get boring. As Eamon Holmes once said, it beats working for a living. Being able to witness history firsthand, to have a front row seat. And they talk about journalism being the first draft of history. And that's definitely how it feels at times. But I think why it hasn't got boring as well is that every time you think the story in terms of this place is about to come to an end, we turn the page and something else happens. We thought the ceasefires were the culmination and then uh, we had the political negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement. Then we thought the agreement was the culmination and we had polar opposite parties agree to share power for the first time properly in government. We thought power sharing was the culmination. Then the IRA decommissioned its weapons to everyone's surprise. So every time we think 
we're coming to the end of the story and, and Northern Ireland's going to become a very boring place. Something else comes along, whether it's for the very first time Britain's Queen sets foot in an independent Ireland, the Irish president pays a state visit to the UK, all of these things that have arisen as a result of what we've rather flippantly sum up in three words, the peace process has kept has kept the story alive and has kept it interesting for all of those 27 years. But yes, after nearly three decades, I am looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. I just haven't found it yet. I suppose going back to your younger days, it, it's an interesting story for people who aren't aware. You've got a tw- twin brother who wanted to be a journalist. You wanted to be a teacher. He ended up being a teacher. You've ended up being a journalist. So how did that happen? Garth, you've done your homework. I'm impressed. Uh, The reason I ended up not going into education is that I decided I wouldn't be able to take from pupils what I had given to the teachers. I have to admit, I was rather unruly. Um, I loved going to school. I just didn't love doing any classwork or homework. I just went to mess around and uh, I think made hanging out in the corridor an art form for too many years. But my my brother wanted to be a sports journalist and he actually ended up, as you say, in education for a wee while also with the inspectorate, poacher turned gamekeeper, but he's now back as principal of a primary school and has decided that's where he wants to finish off his career. So it is interesting that we kind of went along each other's path. And in many ways, maybe there was a bit of prophecy to that because we did swap classes now and again. And our old school friends will, will talk about that, how his big subject was maths and my subject was English. And I was rubbish at maths and he was rubbish at English. So basically for a period of time, I went to his English classes and he went to my maths classes. And we only got caught out at Portadown College because one teacher finally decided that he didn't talk as much as I do. So he's never actually appeared on the news or tried to broadcast on your behalf? No, he has appeared on on Sky News (laughs) on one occasion. And it's an interesting story way back in 1997 uh, when... Um, we were doing a Christmas feature on Sky, and in that year, believe it or not, Northern Ireland had more twins per capita than any other country in Europe. And he happened to be the primary seven teacher in a school which had the greatest number of twins in Northern Ireland. So we had to use his school as a case study. And as a result of that, when we were doing the piece to camera at the end of the report, I started the piece to camera and he finished the piece to camera. So he did appear once on Sky News in a rather humorous way coming up to Christmas a, a long time ago now. Yeah, as if fate was there for you all along, yeah, to get you both on screen at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You went through your education system and then you, you'd done stints at the Banbridge Chronicle and the Portadown Times. Then you moved to the heady heights of downtown radio and cool FM for a, a brief period. Before you... You went to Sky in 1996. That was a big jump for a local reporter to do. Um, did you feel a burden at that point being being in Sky with your accent, being from Northern Ireland, come from a small place, but come from a place that's always in the news? Did you, did you feel anything there? Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about this place always being in the news. I did two and a half years in newspapers, five years at Downtown Radio and Cool FM, really at the tail end of the most, some of the most violent days of the, of the troubles, the Shankill bombing, 
occurred during my very first shift as a radio reporter. Uh, the Grey Steel shootings, Lockon Island, all of that came during the, the, those years I was with Downtown. And Downtown used to pride itself on being first with the news rather than doing the analysis for days. So it was a great training ground. It was a very busy newsroom. But we were on this treadmill of violence, funeral, retaliation, more violence, funeral, retaliation. And we spent far, far too many nights standing at the white tape with another family dealing with with, with dreadful loss. But then the, the the big break, I suppose, that came for me was during the Orange Order standoff at Drum Cree, because Portadown is my hometown. And I, I, I joke to this day that I am the only person from Portadown who ever actually benefited from the Drum Cree standoff because I ended up in the job that I'm in uh, because of it. Or Yes, I think it's fair to say because of it. At the end of 1995, when I left Downtown Radio, a friend of mine, whom you will know, Barbara McCann, another journalist in Northern Ireland, had been freelancing, doing sort of fill-in shifts at Sky News for reporters who were off on holiday or off sick or whatever. And she said to me, you know, there is enough freelance work at Sky News for you to make a living out of it. And I think you should try to jump from radio into television. And that's what I did. But I had only been there a few months when Drum Cree happened. And because I knew Portadown, I knew who to talk to. I knew the sources behind the scenes to find out what was really going on there. Um, it really gave me a leg up in a way that it was happening in my hometown. Um, although that's difficult as well. Sometimes the story is far too close to home. Uh, and as a result, Sky eventually then said, would you like to come and work for us permanently in a staff job? And that's how I ended up doing the job I, I've been doing for 27 years. I remember during the drum crease standoff, some graffiti appeared on a wall and it was, um, you know, what serious kid 80s here. Yes, I remember yeah. it very well. Yeah, it was like, yeah, that's that's a realistic sort of look of what we were actually facing at that point. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're, we're laughing about drum cream, we're joking about it. But I also remember there was there was a few killings in the round those and a young family was murdered and the darkness was always around the corner from us. It, it, it wasn't always that far away unfortunately and what you're saying about standing at the white tape we had Leona O'Neill on last season and she was talking about the same about how that treadmill or that conveyor belt of, of horror can have an impact on the mental health of the of the reporters on the scenes I mean is that something that you would ex- have experienced as well that constant sort of feeling of evil being around the corner Yes, um, and I think it was adrenaline that kept us going during those dark days, and it's only now, as Leona has very rightly recorded in her book, uh, that we're realising the trauma perhaps we experienced in those days. And when you look back on it, those were some very dark days. Um, whether it was the Shankle, right from the Shankle bombing to the Oma bombing, which of course was the was a real shock to us because it came four months after the Good Friday Agreement and, and no one saw it coming, really. Dissidents having the capacity to cause the, the greatest loss of life in a single incident. So I tend not to reflect too much on it because I just tend to be a person who who finds hope, who who looks for hope. And even in those darkest days, there was hope. We've been talking about Drum Cree there. I wrote a chapter in in uh, one of the books about the troubles and and my chapter is about an interview I did with the parents of uh, Michael McGoldrick 
who was, of course, murdered during the, the Drum Creek standoff. And their story's extraordinary. It's, it's in many ways an echo of the Gordon Wilson story, where I found myself interviewing them just two days after their son was murdered. And they told me they forgave the people who had murdered him and, and were going to pray for them that night. Um, those, those are the people whose stories you remember when you put your head on the pillow at the end of the day. People often ask me, you know, who was the most interesting person you met? Who was the most significant person you met? And they expect you to say, you know, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, whoever it happens to be, or, or, or Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, whatever. They they don't expect you to say ordinary people. But, and it feels like a bit of a cliche when you say it. But but it is my my experience that those are the stories you you remember the people who were really courageous during the darkest days. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about that terrible time, and I think you had had the sort of strange privilege. I'm not sure what the phrase is of being the only person to interview Billy Wright on television. Is that correct? The camera. That's right. That I yeah. also record that in that chapter of the book because yeah. it was the most surreal week. At the beginning of the week, I'm interviewing Michael McGoldrick's parents about losing their son. And towards the, the end of that week, you will remember the UVF uh, stood down the Mid-Ulster unit because they had breached the ceasefire to murder Michael McGoldrick and they gave Billy Wright a certain amount of time to, to leave town. My, so I'm interviewing the parents, I think, on the Monday morning. On the Friday evening, my phone rings and I immediately recognise the voice and it's Billy Wright. And he says, I, I want to do um, an interview. And whenever someone like that is offering you an interview, then you've got to go off and hear what they have to say. But because he'd been given a certain length of time to leave town, I remember sitting in his living room um, just off Rectory Park in, in Portadown, a very staunchly loyalist area. And every time a car drove into that cul-de-sac, I wanted to lie on the floor because I was I was thinking the bullets are about to come through the window and I'm sitting here on this sofa interviewing him. But that that interview was broadcast over and over again just a few months later when he was murdered in the Mays prison because he told me during the interview that he was not afraid to die. He kept using this phrase, I'm not afraid of these people because I'm not afraid to die. Uh, and, and those words came back to haunt him, uh, sadly, several months later when he himself became a victim of the troubles. And what's it like? I mean, I know myself... Um I mean, obviously, I I have the privilege of doing research in the this sort of paramilitary underworld subculture, whatever you want to call it, from a historical perspective. And I've interviewed people who who were involved in murder, but from a distance, they've served time in jail, or you know, they've they've moved into politics or whatever. They've done different things with their lives. But you were actually interviewing a really intense figure who was more than likely involved in murder at the time you were talking to him. What's it like as a journalist going into that situation? Because as a historian, I have the sort of, you know, safe distance of, of history and, you know, people have had time to consider their pasts. Whereas you're actually talking to somebody who's involved in that violence at the time well, i mean i know i know he was under threat at the time and that brings an added frisson on to, to what was happening but what's it like dealing with with an individual like that i suppose you just in terms of news 
First of all, you have a deadline that is your target. So you're thinking, I have to just get this job done. And as I said a moment ago, the adrenaline kicks in because of the the deadline and because of the fear that's in that moment. And you're constantly also conscious of all the legalities around what questions can I ask? What is he going to say that he's able to say that isn't going to incriminate him? And I could think of other significant political figures who choose their words very carefully. And therefore, we've got to choose the questions very carefully because you could very quickly wander into the territory of of defamation. So all of that's going on in your head at the time. There's this combination of fear, adrenaline, treading carefully on the legal around the legal landmines uh, but also trying to draw out the story and and i i suppose one of my um one of the ways i've approached it over the years as well is to try not to be judgmental but to let a person just tell their story and i think i think it's one of our our problems in the, in the modern era in the era that we find ourselves in right now, we're very quick to write someone off because we completely disagree with them. Uh, and, and by doing that, sometimes we give them more of a platform. Whereas maybe we need to listen to people who have concerns, listen to people who are aggrieved a little more than we do, not write them off just because they think differently. That doesn't mean we're agreeing with them or that we're condoning their thoughts or their actions. But, but, but we're going to achieve an awful lot more by trying to understand each other rather than just dismissing someone because they were brought up differently from us and have a different worldview and all of those things. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think Absolutely. me and Gathered are not in the way here because we do the same. There's there's people we have on this podcast that other people would find abhorrent. How can you speak to them? How can you give them airtime as such? And it's a case of we know that this place is is, is not black and white or green and orange. Even it, it is very grey, and the, the nuance in this place is unbelievable. So unless you get really down into it and start listening to people. And while I was looking through a few things for you, David, today, I came across your three rules that you give a talk on. And the, the first one was brilliant. The first one I was like, that, "That's shrapnel. That is shrapnel." It's uh, every voice heard. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that giving every, everybody a chance to speak. So exactly what you're saying, they're listening to what they've got to say. And the second one I found very astute, read between the lines. And, and again, I think as a reporter in Northern Ireland, you need to be able to do that. You need to be able to sort of see what message they're actually sending without saying the words. Now, I'm not going to go into the third one because it's about having good news and we don't do good news in Shrapnel. And we're, we're, we're always lambasted. We're, we're very negative, but it's, it's a subject matter. But Reading between the lines is something that you've done extremely well over the years uh, and you've been lauded for it. The, the ability to, to get the interviews that you need, but get the information out in a way that's unbiased. How do you approach that? How do you how do you give everybody the equal footing to say what they have to say? Well, that, that's a good question. Um I suppose it's by detaching yourself a bit from the situation. If you form too many attachments and allegiances, then you will be biased. You will be partial. You have to stand back from all of that. Um, people, I think, from the time I grew up in, from the school I went to, from the background my family came from, may expect me to show an allegiance one way or the other. 
But in many ways, I would nearly do the opposite. I would nearly go too far the opposite way to make sure that I'm being as impartial as I, as I possibly can. Um, I, I would be criticised by many people for suggesting this, but the, the first point you raised there about um, making sure every voice was heard, I, I think the best example of that was when, when Margaret Thatcher imposed the broadcast ban on Sinn Féin in the 1980s. And the media circumvented the ban by using an actor's voice for Jerry Adams. That didn't mean for one second the media was condoning the opinion of Jerry Adams. We were just ensuring there was balance, which is just one of the primary objectives of journalism. Whether we agree with Jerry Adams, whether we agree uh, with uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, whether we agree with Doug Beatty, what, uh, Colm Eastwood, Naomi Long, is, is irrelevant. Everyone's voice needs to be heard. Everyone has a right to have their voice heard. So that that's always been a big ambition of mine. And you talked about getting the interviews. You know, sometimes I'm criticised for taking too softly an approach, on, uh, softly, softly an approach on interviews. And, and I, I make no apology for that. And, and because I'm not a fan of the aggressive style of interviewing that we hear far too much of on the radio and see far too much of on our televisions, especially here in Northern Ireland. I've always believed if you are aggressive in your approach, you shut down your interviewee. You will not get them to open up and tell you what's really going on in their heart and mind, what's really going on behind the scenes. They will consider it an personal attack. So instead of saying, Prime Minister, why have you not resigned today? I'll say, Prime Minister, there are people out there who think you should have resigned today. What do you say to those people? That is exactly the same question, but it doesn't feel like a personal attack. So to, to me, I don't think I am um, asking less um, pointed questions or, or less important questions. I just think the tone in which you ask them is so important in trying to get someone to feel at ease enough to talk to you and make sure every voice is heard and make sure, therefore, that you have balance and impartiality. But there must be some individuals who test your patience. And I'm thinking recently about Suella Braverman. <laughs> it's okay to bring that up. <laughs> oh, it's okay to bring that up. I'm, I, went I, thought it was a, I thought it was a great point that you made. That's why I bring it up. I went a bit viral, I think, over my comments on, on Suella Braverman. I, I sailed close to the wind, perhaps, but there are moments you run out of patience, yeah. especially uh, when you have a growing sense of a government that has very little understanding of, never mind interest in Northern Ireland. Her comments in relation to uh, protests against Palestine were just so off the wall in in terms of her attempt to compare them to Northern Ireland. It it wasn't clear actually what she was who she was aiming it at, but it was very difficult to argue that it it wasn't her confusing what the Orange Order stands for and the Loyal Order stand for with those who were marching in support of Palestine, which was just such a juxtaposition. My only conclusion was that we had a Home Secretary in the UK who didn't know the difference between unionists and nationalists. And, you know, you remember the grief that Karen Bradley took as Secretary of State when she behaved similarly. So in some ways, it may have been, if not the straw, one of the straws that broke the camel's back for the last Home Secretary, but I long, I long for the day when we have a government as engaged 
as previous governments were in Northern Ireland, who invested enough time to understand the nuances, to read between the lines. That's what's missing. This government thinks it's all black and white, and it is one huge big grey area. And they haven't, you don't really get that unless you invest the time in this place and spend time with people. And, and the two best examples, I think, probably were Momolum and Julian Smith in recent years because they actually went out for a pint with people. You know, they went for a bowl of chips with people. They, they got to know them on a human level. It, it wasn't just political speak. It wasn't just sound bites. They really, look at the work Julian did in terms of the victims of historical institutional abuse. It was extraordinary because he really got to know those people and tried to understand what they were dealing with. That That's what's missing now, that kind of relationship with a government that is a bit remote. Um, and um, I don't think I'm over stretching to say it's amazing to me that some political parties don't appear to have recognized that yet yeah i mean mo molum was the person who came to mind when you were you were talking about um that sort of more relatable um aspect of of politics and julian smith as well it, it does strike me as being important because to me politics politics is everywhere politics is everything no matter what we do it's political so to have that sort of um, ability to communicate with people and go through the invisible barriers that are put up, Mo obviously was a fantastic example of that. She didn't really sort of stand in ceremony or, you know, probably didn't um, play to the tune that she was always meant to, but that was why she was so good at what she did. And that brings me to the, the point that you've brought up about Mo Molum. What are your memories of Mo? Because we've heard other people talk about her and, it's never anything but, you know, good stories or fun stories. So do you have any uh, memories of in your interactions with her? I think there is, there has never been a Secretary of State before or since where you have a case of what you see is what you get. <laughs> Mo was just so on a human level. There was no playing to the cameras. There was no finding sound bites. You could tell when she came out to answer questions, she hadn't really thought about it and she was just uh, shooting from the hip. Uh, but but we saw the real Mo because of that. And, and one of my lasting memories of her, the occasion was very sad. It was the more, but, but, but her reaction was quite humorous the, to an event that happened. It was, she had been so busy during the political negotiations. They had just brokered the Good Friday Agreement. She finally had got a break and she flew to Greece for her holiday. And as she landed in Greece, her phone rang and it was Tony Blair to tell her that the Oma bomb had happened and she needed to get back on the plane and return to Northern Ireland. And she did get back on the plane and return to Northern Ireland. Uh, and that was her first break in in months, but she came straight home. And the next morning she came to our studio in Belfast to do an interview. And we got halfway through, we, we, we got the first question covered. And uh, the, the operator in the gallery said to me in my ear, it was a pre-recorded interview that there'd been a sound problem and we need to start again. And she'd just answered the first question. So I had to apologize to her, go back to do it again. And you could see the sound operator through the glass to one side. She turned around and let's just say she gestured towards the person on the other side of the glass, how she felt that morning. And and that's one of my memories of Mo. There were no errors and graces. You knew what she thought about you one way or the other. 
I think what you're saying there, we do long for a Secretary of State that actually knows us. Well, mm-hmm. I, I'm sick to death of having to tweet about things that they get wrong or they don't understand. They, don't, they, they genuinely just don't understand. Um, yeah, and, and Mo, Mo certainly broke the mould. Um, it can't be replacing Julian Smith. I mean, an impact in, in, in the period of time that he was here was vast. You know, it it he did work miracles for what he what he had. It's it's hard to know why they don't get it now. Sometimes I look at it positively and think they don't get it because Northern Ireland is not making national news every night of the week for all the wrong reasons. You know, bombs are not exploding in England, thankfully, and therefore they think that box is ticked. Um, lots of people think it's because they're just paving the way to a referendum on Irish unity. I'm not sure that's the case. I think it literally is a case of them regarding this issue as sorted with the slight exception. Many don't see it as a slight exception, but the, the UK government clearly does of the Windsor framework or, or the Northern Ireland Protocol. They think the job's done. And I think there's less understanding of this place because they don't feel they need to understand it anymore. And that's not unique to government. I will be honest and say, I think that's also happening in newsrooms across the UK. Uh, and maybe that's just an age thing. I'm getting too old. When I when I had called my, my news desk about a story or I'm talking to a producer in London who's maybe half my age, you have to give them the history lesson of the island of Ireland. So it's like, can I give you 800 years here in two minutes before we talk about how we're going to do this story? Because, you know, you call them to say, you know, Ian Paisley has died or John Hume has died or David Trimble has died. And we have producers who were not born at the time of the Good Friday Agreement they don't know who these people are. They don't know who Senator George Mitchell is. That That's a surprise to many people probably, but that's just the generation we now find ourselves in. And that, as I say, there are positives around that in that in some ways it, it's good that they're living in a much more normal place. And I'm very thankful that my children have grown up in a very different Northern Ireland to the one I grew up in. Yeah, I was going to, I was actually going to say that it, it is a blessing that they don't know us that well. Some, some of the younger ones, because we, we don't make the headlines, but you'd like to think those in power, those who are paying, paid a f- small wage to come here and run the place efficiently, but have some sort of background, some sort of briefing of, of how this place works, at least a basic grasp of what's going on. It just seems to be, they, they genuinely get worse as they go along. I mean, I think from, from Julian downwards, it's, it's every step, every, Secretary of State we've had that's got that little bit more inept is the, mm-hmm. probably the best way to say it. Um, and again, I'd also put that down to the number of shakeups we've had over the last while. I mean, because I read through your bio earlier, you've interviewed so many presidents, US presidents, Irish presidents, Irish prime ministers. Your number of British prime ministers has shot through the roof, I think, in the last couple of years. I think you've, I think you've maybe doubled your quota oh, in the last three missing. years. There's one missing, I have to say. I never interviewed Liz Truss. I'm really disappointed about that. She wasn't there long enough. But she she breaks my my record for having spoken to every prime minister since since George since John Major. So I'm 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 disappointed. But who knows? Maybe she'll make a comeback. Oh, I don't th- I don't think you're missing much. <laughs> that, that, that would annoy me. My OCD would be kicking in at that point. Going, How can you not have that in the collection? You're missing an album there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to take a wee trip back because I remember a certain um, report you were doing. Uh, it was the Holy Cross sort of situation that was going on. Um, and you were, I think you were live on air when the pipe bomb went off behind you. 
I know what that sounds like. And and your heart stops. Even though you, you've seen these and heard these before, that moment, because you don't know what, what it is, you don't know how close it is, and the, and the panic sets in. But you kept going to a certain extent. How did you hold your nerve long enough to do that? Because I'd have been checking limbs for blood and diving for cover like everybody else around you was. But yet you managed to keep going. I, I don't know, apart from adrenaline, but I know, and live television just requires you to keep going, especially whenever you're in the midst of a breaking story and people want to know, what did we just hear? What's going on there? But I also remember on that day it being it being very difficult to keep going because I knew I had colleagues who were on the other side of the police line who were walking to school with the children that morning. And so you immediately think, of the children, are they injured? Are their parents injured? And you think, are my colleagues injured? Have I a cameraman wounded on the other side of that police line? And so it's, those were terrifying days. But, but I often reflect on the significance of Holy Cross as well, the crisis there and how quickly it was resolved because we spent 10 days broadcasting every morning for an hour as the children walked to school and every evening for an hour as the children walked home from school and like a short update every hour on the hour for 10 days. And then it just stopped like that because of 9-11, which just obviously took the world's focus for the next couple of weeks. But during that two weeks, I think it only took about another week before the Holy Cross crisis was resolved. It was sorted out. And it did make me question the negative contribution sometimes the media inadvertently make to the search for solutions in this place. We don't intentionally do that, but sometimes when the world's focus is on you, it's very hard to compromise. It's very hard to slip off and have those really important conversations. And, And we saw it in Drum Cree, we saw it in Holy Cross, and we've seen it since. When the media pulls out, the story becomes less interesting or there's a bigger story somewhere else in the world sometimes that's when things change and it may be the reason why we struggle so much these days 20 odd years later because it's virtually impossible to pull back when there's social media there's always someone there who if they are not a journalist they might think they're a journalist and be giving their own version of it and they're an activist rather than a journalist most of the time and expressing an opinion under the guise of journalism and that's that's making it very difficult i think and also because uh you know we have all sorts of um opportunities for people to express their opinion opinion in other ways now that that i think it's difficult for us to to find the space to have the conversations quietly that that brought us to where we are today yeah, I think I think what you're saying there about nine eleven, the media just pulled out of Belfast near enough on mass at that point and the focus went elsewhere. And the, the community workers got down to the nitty gritty up in Ardoin. They they they, mm-hmm. they got together and they and they were meeting before that, but it's very hard when everybody's pulling at you and, and giving you that grief and they want the constant updates and you can't give an inch and you can't be seen to be backing down. And you take that focus away and all of a sudden the, the hands loosen. And you're able to sit and have an adult conversation. And, and Holy Cross was sort of, thankfully. Um, and I, I think you're talking there about Twitter. And mm-hmm. an excellent one tonight. Don't don't watch the news, record the news. Encouraging people to go out and sort of put up their live feeds and, and give their opinions. And it's an unqualified opinion most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's without context. 
and it don't give you the full story. They'll give you one one view and leave it at that. And people don't know the difference between reporting the news and opinion and mm-hmm. opinion pieces. And and I think that's where we're, we have slipped so far. Uh, I said all fair, the 140 characters don't help. People have to get their sound bites in, and we live in a world of sound bites, and mm. it's hard to move away from. Is it destroying proper journalism? Is it destroying that sort of American First Amendment freedom, freedom of the press? Is, is social media killing that? Yes, it is, in, in a word. Um, but it's been a journey we've been on for a while, actually, and it's not just about social media. It's about an attempt to manage the news. I've really seen that over the years. Way back 10 years ago, even five years ago, we were given much more access to those in positions of authority, from prime minister downwards. They they called a press conference. We were all allowed into the room. You're allowed to ask any question you want. Same with the Secretary of State here in Northern Ireland. That's no longer the case. Quite often, they're trying to make a statement about something and push it out on their own Twitter feed. Or they've gone through a period of time where they tried to issue to the media statements that they were recording their own communications team was recording with a small camera or an iPhone. And we have absolutely resisted it as journalists because that is managing the news. It's not giving us an opportunity on behalf of our our readers, our viewers, to hold people accountable for the decisions that they're making. So I've seen a whole shift over the years towards news management. And and then we have the additional problem of, of social media, which is people reporting rumour, who have no understanding about the need to verify sources. All of us verify everything at least twice, if not three times, through the police, through the ambulance service, through whoever, before we start putting it on social media or reporting it on air. But though the law that requires us to do that as, as, as journalists does not exist in terms of social media. And that's why there needs to be a serious overhaul of the legislation to, to take account of the fact that we live in a digital era. And, and a good example of that is you, you know what I mean when I talk about the, the moratorium coming up to polling where we are not allowed to report anyone's position on any issue on their on their um, manifesto between seven in the morning and 10 at night while the polls are open. But anybody can tweet whatever they like while the polls are open. So that's really out of date, in my opinion. And and it's one of the things that's got to be looked at. So there's a problem with news management and there's definitely a problem with sound bites. We're not, we live in a world of bombast. Make America great again. Get Brexit done. Take back control. Oven ready deal. You know, what, what wouldn't you give to health? healthy political discourse where people are actually seeking to understand, to to learn from an argument instead of trying to win it with a soundbite, trying to polarise people, divide communities with a soundbite. That is the road to nowhere, in my opinion. And it was only the healthy political conversation in the past that, that brought us to the place where we had parliamentary ceasefires and we had polar opposite parties sharing power in government for the first time. That those conversations are missing and and they need to be they we need to find a way to get back there in my opinion. Yeah, I mean it's re- really interesting because I mean I've, I think about social media as a sort of cure its egg. 
Because there, there, there are obviously good aspects to it. You know, myself and Sam linked in through Twitter and we developed a friendship and years later now we're doing shrapnel and I'm thinking back to the, the bad days, you know, if the troubles that you report on, um, you know, in the, in the early years of your career, myself and Sam would never have had a chance to meet back then because, mm. because of where we come from. And I mean, I suppose social media and, and sort of technology and digital platforms have led to democratization of of um, journalism in in one respect that we do see the ability for people like Lyra McKee at the time to emerge who might not have had the opportunity uh, in the past um, and it was a new way of approaching journalism. But on the other side, as you quite rightly say, the floodgates have opened. Basically, you know, everyone's got an opinion now. I've I've myself and Sam have talked about this before. I've had that myself. David, you know, if I put up something relating to my research, immediately there'd be piles of people coming on telling me I'm a bigot, I'm a sectarian bigot, not knowing my background, telling me I'm capitalising off people's misery, this, that and the other. Uh, and yeah, the room for informed debate, like the type that we're having here, engaged conversation, letting people elaborate on their opinions, giving breathing space to the ideas, um, just doesn't exist. And, you know, I don't think we, if if we were, if it was 1998 now and we had social media, I don't think we would have had the agreement. I don't think it would have got across the line. That's just my feeling. No, but I, you I, might I have agree. a different opinion. I, I agree with you. And I, and I also hear what you say about the benefits of, of not necessarily social media, but of new technology, uh, digital technology. Um, I have had the privilege of, quite often of speaking to journalism students, um, both at home and in the United States, because they're absolutely fascinated by Northern Ireland and the peace process and the role that the media may have played in that. Uh, when I return from the States, uh, my wife often asks me, how did it go? And I say, it went really well, but I could have stood up and recited Humpty Dumpty sat in the wall because you've got a different accent. They think it's wonderful. But when I'm talking to students there, I, I often say to them, that they must not ever allow anyone to tell them that they've missed the golden age of journalism because there sometimes can be the mindset because the broadsheet isn't what it used to be uh, because print journalism is struggling at times. Even radio, uh, television news particularly is struggling at times. Everyone's reading their news off their iPhone. That doesn't mean they've missed the golden age of journalism. This has the potential still to be the golden age because of the extraordinary new technology that allows you to broadcast live. When I started broadcasting for Sky, if I wanted to broadcast live, we needed a massive satellite truck. I needed about five people, you know, an engineer, a cameraman, a lighting person, a sound person, producer. Nowadays, I could literally do it myself with my iPhone. And that's fantastic development in technology. But if we can, if we can in, in this generation, and it'll not be me, it'll be those who are the age of my children who, who develop that technology uh, and use it for good. If we can take the new technology and apply the age old principles of journalism, truth and accuracy and balance and fairness and all of those things, then this has the potential to be the golden age. But I think that technology needs the age-old principles of journalism applied, and that's what's not happening very often. And I think also it's only fair if you agree with me, is the attitude of a lot of people who, mm -hmm. and, and, they, and they go to different TV channels now, whether it be GB News, Sky News, BBC, because they have, they have a perception that there is a bias there that they agree with, and, and they go with that. But I also think there's a unique opportunity there for the likes of the broadsheet to come back because there are people out there who are balanced and who want a balanced and factual 
sort of briefing of what's going on in the world and they don't want the hidden bias. They don't want it controlled by big media or political parties or individuals who, who want to tailor the world to their mind's eye view. Um, so there is an opportunity there, I think, for for us to go a bit retro. If you want to look at like a frostal, that it, it's there's a chance there for people who want a balanced and unbiased news source. And I think the first the first sort of company that gets that right and can prove their credentials, I think will be on the an absolute winner because the polar opposites will go with, with whoever they want to go with. Mm-hmm. But the the middle ground are looking for that and they're looking for they're looking for to see where can I get news that is actually the proper news. It is actually is a recording of what has happened and it it is factual. So I think there is a, a unique opportunity there for us to do that. Um but will it happen in our lifetime? You talk about, you know, the extreme opinions uh, and it's it's easy to 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 get a soundbite from those on the extremes because they shout the loudest, they tweet the most often uh, and the truth always in my opinion lies somewhere in the middle and I've I've often been surprised that the parties that are on the extremes have not tried harder to reach into that middle ground. I mean Alliance has done extremely well because those parties haven't done that. I think I'm always surprised by how much attention they just give to their base. They're going, they're going to get those votes anyway. You know, Sinn Fein is going to get votes from people who are seeking Irish unity. The DUP are going to get votes from people who feel most passionately about Northern Ireland remaining part of the UK. So I, I don't understand the, the failure to reach into the middle ground and to try to, to, to find some to find some consensus on more issues, but to just keep playing to the base. And it's maybe, it's the big failure. It's not maybe at all. It is definitely the big failure of the peace process and of the agreement in that it silenced, it largely silenced the guns and the bombs. I know there have been exceptions, of course, but it did not produce the reconciliation that we so desperately hoped for. And I think that's, I said this at the time of the anniversary of the agreement, mandatory coalition, the very thing that was designed to underpin peace is the thing that has undermined peace yeah. because it has given those polar opposite parties, the, t- the largest unionist party and the largest nationalist party, an effective veto on government, whether it's over RHI or over the Brexit protocol. They're able to leave us without a government for months, even years at a time. Yeah, I mean, Davy Adams was on the pod a few weeks back and he, he said it perfectly. The Good Friday Agreement hasn't failed us. We have failed it. Mm-hmm. And, and it certainly is. And we talk about the spirit of agreement and losing that spirit. I also think that we expected the job to be done. And, and this, the peace process is a process. And we don't think we're, we're, we've gathered what a process is. It doesn't finish. You keep keep moving mm-hmm. with it. You develop it and you involve it. And I think what you're saying there is right about the political parties. They preach to their choirs on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. They They hold their ground with their own core. And they do very little outreach to try and grab votes from outside of that base unit. It and it's quite depressing sometimes because you. I mean, I always say Michelle O'Neill uh, said that the IRA had no other choice. I said, what do you expect her to say? I, I didn't expect any other words to come out of her mouth. She couldn't say anything else, even if she wanted to. Mm-hmm. That 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 is what has to be said. That that pleases their core. So what are you expecting from them? And if and if you want her to be brave and say, you know what, there was another way. We got there too late. I would applaud. There'd be mm. plenty in the middle ground who would say that's a brave step to take. But she could be lambasted at, at home. And mm. for others, it wouldn't be enough anyway. Uh, so it's it's like they're damned if they do and damned if they don't sometimes. And that that is unfair. Um, 
have you ever come across a politician you, you've been talking to on an interview and you've been sitting there actually feeling pity for them because you know that they're on a loser, but they have to hold the course that they're on? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, <laughs> I would honestly, the answer to that is probably 99% of the time I interview politicians, I feel sorry for them because they're in that position. There are very few politicians that you really feel are speaking from the heart. They are still bound by the past. We have some who are courageous enough to say things that they know are going to get them into, into trouble, but it's, it's still, it's still driven by politics rather than driven by people. Uh, if that makes sense, I, I am always a person who's looking for the real story. I don't want the bombast. Um, and sometimes, you know, I don't even want the, the really well thought through, carefully carved out argument. I want to just hear what's in your heart. What, what, what makes you tick? You know, where did you come from? What's your background? What gives you this worldview? Why do you see things the way you see them? And maybe that's different from the way I see them. But, but far too often we're, we're, we're too quick to, to express our own opinion rather than taking time to actually hear why someone thinks the way they do. And, and I would long for much more of that human side to our, our politicians because I actually think it's when you see the human side, people empathize with their politicians. You know, I don't know that Theresa May ever had as much empathy as the day she shed tears in Downing Street. And the same with Margaret Thatcher. We saw a little bit of the human. And I, I would love to see more of that. Is is that because there's too many spin doctors, special advisors? Obviously, you've got the party whips. Is there too many constraints around politicians in terms of the structure of politics now? I think that probably is right. And and again, it's it's because there is no escape. They they're if they go out for dinner, there could be someone there with an iPhone. <laughs> You know, if they're having a pint with their friends and something they say could have been recorded by somebody with an iPhone two seats away, I think they're constantly on edge because of the technology in the world today as well that didn't exist in the past. And and so I think that that is a factor in terms of how people are um, on their guard all the time and the team around them are on their, nearly on their guard too much at times and thinking through. They, certainly in terms of, yeah, I'm going to say it anyway. Certainly in terms of, of the current comms team around the Northern Ireland Secretary, I think they're trying too hard. They're trying too hard. Sometimes we just need to see who the real person is. Let them, cut them loose, let them go and shake hands and get to know the locals and form relationships like like Julian Smith and others before him did. Yeah, absolutely. That's when politics becomes relatable for people. If hmm? you can see the real person and if you can relate to them, then you're going to have more trust in them. They say all politics is local, and I think maybe that's the problem. They're trying to not make it so local, uh, to be detached from people. Uh, and that's when people feel their, their politicians don't understand them, and that causes all sorts of problems, as we've seen in the UK and in Ireland in recent days. Well, in your chapter for Leona's book and Chris Lindsay's book, apologies to Chris. Chris is a friend of mine as well. I have to give him credit there. He's co-editor. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> In case he pulls me up on that. Um, you, you used a really good phrase you said about 
how you as journalists, um, we broke the news, but the news broke us. And in that chapter, you talk about um, the Shankle bombing, um, OMA, all these different traumatic events that you reported on. Um, now, obviously, a lot of that is in the past. You know, there's less political violence in, in Northern Ireland. But obviously, with global events and also in terms of, you know, the things we see day to day, like child sexual abuse and murder, anything that, you know, journalists would have to report on. Do you think news organizations, papers, uh, you know, news channels, news corporations could do more to protect the mental health of journalists? And is there a way that that should be embedded as a practice in, in news corporations? I think it is changing it's certainly changing in terms of the network i work for um you will remember maybe about 10 years ago a colleague of mine was shot dead while filming in cairo um uh, mick dean someone i had worked with in the united states many times a lovely guy and i think in the wake of that sky did a huge review around their health and safety practices but also around mental health because of the impact of that on the team who had been working with him at the time and and all the way through covid when people were reporting numerous deaths and they were dealing with doom and gloom day in day out they were constantly reminding us that there were you know counseling services available through the company and that sort of thing so i think they have turned their attention towards it and they do recognize the the, the trauma that is experienced in in witnessing some of that stuff um firsthand um i don't want to be flippant at all about it but the way i cope with all of those things is to just constantly look for the good constant it's kate Eddy and I can't compare myself to her in any shape or form. She is a journalist extraordinaire, um, and I've had the privilege of having many conversations with her, but her book is called The Kindness of Strangers, and that sums it up for me. There is, all, I firmly believe there will always be more good people than bad people in the world. And I have more people who say, thanks for how you've reported that story than I have people who lambast me on Twitter because I'm too orange one day and too green the next day. You know, I, I, I look for the good and I think I look for hope. And I, I refuse to be, um, to be negative all the time. I think, I think that's how I cope with covering all of that stuff. Yeah. Being a, I have to say, for a reporter, you take the least amount of abuse I've seen on Twitter. Um, I think people genuinely believe that you're balanced and you do not have an ulterior motive to the stuff that you do. So I, I that's a compliment, I suppose. Um, and another thing, you because you have been so positive tonight, which is really killing me, um, <laughs> we have a certain individual who keeps challenging me to, have, to say something positive every single pod, and I struggle to do it. And I think this pod will take care of it for the season because of the amount of positivity in there. But it just, the name shrapnel doesn't work anymore. Yeah, well, <laughs> it is because I'm about to have a gotcha at you at the moment because I found out something today that although you're you're almost saint-like in how you approach things, there is not really. I, be, I believe a feud ongoing between you and a former MLA who was a minister. I believe you and Danny Kennedy parted on bad terms at one point. <laughs> His, his last act as a minister sort of put you in hot water, I believe. Is that right? My, my eldest son never has never forgiven me for this because I got a fine for driving in a, was it a bus lane? I think it was, outside the Europa Hotel. I didn't even realise I was in a bus lane. And I received the fine on Danny Kennedy's last job, last day in the job. And, and I tweeted him, you know, some 
remarks about sending me a farewell gift in the post and the Belfast Telegraph picked up on it and I ended up on the front page of the Telegraph, you know, Sky Journalist fined for driving in Bustling or something. My, my eldest son was so unimpressed that my joke had landed me on the front page of the Belfast Telegraph because he, my kids have got used to what I, you know, they grew up with me on the television and two of them are fine with it. But my son is, is much more modest and shy and he doesn't, he doesn't like us being in the limelight too often. <laughs> I have to admit, I read today, I think the, the headline was uh, a fine day driving in Belfast for Sky News, David Splevins. It was, it was just, it was, yeah, it was funny. I actually thought to myself, if anybody's out to get you, it must be Donny Kennedy. You must be <laughs> sitting somewhere at the minute plotting the, the revenge after outing him on the Belfast Telegraph front page, to be honest. David, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I knew it was going to go well, but I just didn't think I was going to come off this pod smiling so much. And I really don't know what to do with myself. Usually we come off this, we have an hour decompression time on our own in a dark room processing <laughs> what we've just done. And tonight it's like... I, I, no hope. It's coming up to Christmas. You've got to find hope. You've got to be hopeful. That's, that's it. This is like going to Santa's Grotto as a youngster. It's been great. It's filled me with joy and happiness. That's I really don't know how to process this. Is this what it's like to be happy? I mean, I, I'm not too <laughs> sure what this is. There, there's a there's a sort of feeling in me at the minute. I don't know. This positivity is going to have to get knocked out of me. I think I'll I'll maybe give Tony Grove a phone call after this. Our producer in the side. Do you think you think we could pass it along to the hill and have some positivity there as well in terms of relations and <laughs> and, and having some normality back in this little place? It there's would be so, lovely. Now, there's so much potential in Northern Ireland. I feel really passionately about Northern Ireland. I've grown up here. And no matter where I go in the world, I've reported for Sky from 10 different countries on four different continents at various times. But this is home. It'll always be home. And I'm really proud of Northern Ireland. And I see the immense potential there is here. And I just, I want us to realise it. I want We're, us we're the most friendliest people in the world, everybody outside of their own country, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think last year I was looking through our old episodes and last year, just before Christmas, we did a, a pod, just myself and Gareth, and it was entitled An Election for Christmas, because we were <laughs> pondering right. whether it was going to be a storm-out election for Christmas. <clears throat> and here we are, a year down the line, we'll maybe do a part two, a sequel. <laughs> you could just do it on repeat, you know, the show, the show a lot of repeats at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, it's a bit like Die Hard trilogy, just keep going every year, <laughs> but I feel... David, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, yes, for, thank you very much, David. Too. Thank you.